It's Thursday, April 20th, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Defense Tech Week is just a few weeks away. Hosted by Defense Scoop, Defense Tech Week is the nation's premier week-long festival dedicated to technology's critical role in the future of modern U.S. defense and national security. The lineup includes community-driven events featuring leaders in defense, technology, and academia. It all begins May 8th, and it's happening across D.C. You'll also be able to enjoy plenty of sessions virtually if you can't be there in person. Learn more at defensetechweek.com. The National Security Agency's Cybersecurity Directorate is tasked with preventing and eradicating threats to U.S. national security systems, focusing mainly on the defense industrial base and the nation's weapons security. At the CrowdStrike Government Summit, Director of the NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate, Rob Joyce, broke down the current threat landscape his organization is tracking. So from NSA, we have a unique vantage point. Our special advantage is we get to do foreign threat intelligence and reach out into adversary space to understand their tools, their infrastructure, their capabilities, and then try to translate that into action that is um, something that defense can take advantage of. So the big four are um, perennial problems. So they're the folks you hear us talk about all the time, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and then there's the global fight against the cyber um, criminals in that in that arena as well. So let me walk through them. Um, for us, there's been a lot of focus over the last year, year and a half in the Russia space. As the tensions grew with Ukraine, um, everybody's watching to understand what's the cyber component of that going to be. What's the um, what's the offensive capability of Russia going to do? Will it be focused just on Ukraine? Will it spill over? Will it come at the U.S.? And, and I think you heard a lot of discussions about, you know, worries toward our critical infrastructure, our partnerships with CISA, trying to have folks ready, um, the whole Shields Up campaign that really brought a lot of attention um, to how do you keep critical infrastructure safe and secure. So as we look to um, the, the invasion, a lot of folks thought, where's the big cyber effect? Um, there was an enormous amount um, at the beginning, and, and actually it continues apace today, but it's generally been confined to the theater of active operations. And by that I mean mostly in Ukraine, there's daily cyber attacks going on there. There's daily pressure against their, their critical infrastructure, their businesses, their governments, individuals in that space, and we've seen um, a, a large amount of um, just wiper malware thrown at them. We've seen operations to, um, to go after and take down infrastructure, but for the most part, the enduring thing that's going on there is a lot of intelligence collection, right? That should be unsurprising. There's an active war, they're shooting kinetic operations, and understanding that environment is a high priority for, for, for many um, activities there. So, so we see that on an ongoing basis daily. But it doesn't stop just at the, at the borders of Ukraine. It, uh, it continues into the near abroad. So the countries on the periphery of Ukraine, a lot of interest in 
What's the weapons transport? What is the supply routes? What are the humanitarian aids? What are the, um, what are the logistical support activities going on? And, and so the, 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 the countries bordering Ukraine are still feeling a lot of that cyber pressure. Um, and then in the US, what we're seeing is especially the defense industrial base um, and the transportation and logistic companies that are helping the USAID uh, get into theater um, are, have seen an uptick over the course of the past year. So any of you in that um, sector, in those sectors, um, have probably um, been in the middle of some of the, the, the ongoing penetrations or the attempts to, to gain intel against those um, series of activities. Doesn't stop just at intel collection. We do have continuing ongoing worries about critical infrastructure. If you look at um, you know, the history of Ukraine, that was the first place the world saw practical, tangible operations against critical infrastructure in the electric sector. Um, so that is a non-trivial threat that continues is the Russian um, interest and ability to hold things at risk, whether it be for the Ukraine war or the people that are supporting them um, in that space. Um, past Russia, the enduring challenge for us, past, present, and future is China. Um, we've all in the cyber industry been through uh, the constant efforts of China to grab intellectual property, trade secrets, and capabilities from the West. And um, that has not abated. There's been periods of time where that goes up and down, um, but we still have um, an enormous amount of operational activity thrown at us um, for the purposes of gathering economic and, uh, and uh, um, intellectual property um, from the US. So when we look at that, it doesn't just stop at that intellectual point. Um, we had the Haftium attacks where a zero day was discovered in Microsoft Exchange servers. And it was um, really surprising when it came out that was being exploited. And it was being exploited by a nation state actor. Um, that that actor didn't kind of disappear and slink into the dark corners of the room. That's traditionally what we see. What actually happened was when they got caught and the world understood that there was a vulnerability under active exploit, they dialed up the scripts, they hit scan, and they parsed the whole entirety of the internet looking for vulnerable servers. And they threw an exploit at every single one they found. So there was this massive land grab of tens of thousands of machines across the internet that were exploited um, for the purposes of smash and grab and prepositioning. They didn't care where they got to, but any exploited box was a good exploited box because it was a pivot point, it was information, it was an opportunity. And that was just so brazen, right? That, that's an element that we really hadn't been, hadn't had to deal with in the past. The idea that a nation state at scope and scale would go out and catastrophically grab information and preposition. Um, it, it, it was a unique activity. Uh, that kind of gives you a sense of 
There is a, there's a boldness and a willingness to take operational risk because they're not seeing um, the, the downside of running those kinds of operations. Um, Sean Henry just talked about um, deterrence, right? There's deterrence by denial. There's some amount of deterrence through our international norms. There's some amount of deterrence through the capabilities that I can bring you pain. Um, and, and all of those need to be woven together to get actual deterrence. So the good news is you can look back at the Russia-Ukraine invasion and Russia chose not to come at the U.S., right? They chose not to um, do operations to, to uh, disrupt U.S. infrastructure. Why? There was some um, element of deterrence in there, right? It was all elements of government and capabilities that we bring. But that fails at times for us. Um, and I would say, you know, that Chinese activity is one example of it. Um, if you move on, um, we've seen a lot of activity in the Iranian space. Um, some of that activity has been um, government um, activity. Other has been criminal, where ransomware activity associated with um, Iranian actors has occurred. So you just had um, Brian Vorndran up here from the FBI. There was a major push this year across multiple elements of the government to identify um, Iranian activity, call it out, expose it, and use a number of tools, whether it's DOJ indictments and rewards for justice, to the, um, the publication of malware and tradecraft and other things to take away some of their operations. And I think that is one characteristic of the last two years you've seen is multiple elements of the U.S. government combined with our friends and allies like um, Canada, Australia, um, and, and uh, the U.K., where we will go out together and highlight what we know about an intrusion set or an actor, call out the bad behavior, and provide the tools to recognize and deal with those types of capabilities. And across the board, the thing that I would encourage everyone here to do is when the U.S. government, you know, CISA, NSA, FBI, put out an advisory that says these are the top 10 ways that China is exploiting your systems, uh, that's tremendously actionable. So the first thing you should take away is it is based on intelligence, right? It is based on incident response and it is based on industry knowledge of what is actually getting victims compromised today. And, and almost always the things in those bulletins are end days. They're, they're things that are known, patchable, and, and remediatable. Um, it's also the case that occasionally the advisories come out when we're announcing a brand new vulnerability um, but always it's giving you the steps you can do to go out, find, and remediate that thing. Now, if you're in the IT field today, you know, the list of things you've got to pay attention to, that um, the, the known CVEs, the known vulnerabilities is massive. And what we're trying to do is lift up to the top the things that are actively going to get you exploited. Um, and the things that can be actively done um, to prevent that. So I'd encourage you all, um, pay attention to those, especially when we drop the 
you know, the, the most common list, whether it's a China actor, Russian actor, or something else. Um, the last big bucket, North Korea. Um, really interesting uh, use case recently with the supply chain of um, some internet VoIP telephone systems, right? Uh, industry attributed that to North Korea. It was a pretty bold move to get into that supply chain and attempt to trojanize an update so that if you installed the patch, the update, as you're supposed to, you're actually bringing in a, um, a vulnerability to your system. So um, the good news is that was detected very early, um, very early by industry. Word got out and it had very little impact as far as we can tell. Um, to any of the major sectors that we would consider critical infrastructure, with the exception of um, some cryptocurrency targets that they were explicitly going after. And that's the hallmark of the North Korea threat, right? Most of us in the room don't have to worry about the North Korea threat unless you're in finance or banking. Um, now, there could be the secondary, if you look, the 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 practice of getting into the supply chain is one that is being proven over and over again, right? That if you can get upstream into a device, a security product, um, a common service that everyone uses and it allows you entry into that system, um, that is a massive win across many, many opportunities. So the, the North Koreans were looking to get there. Um, they executed they got to a couple of the targets they were seeking. The question was, if this was low and quiet, would they have kept going beyond the, um, the crypto targets they were after and done things in the ransomware and extortion arena? Um, probably most likely, because there are some elements of ransomware and extortion uh, coming out of those actors as well. You can learn more about the U.S. cybersecurity threat landscape at the dailyscooppodcast.com. There's a new Zero Trust maturity model from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. The latest version of the guidance updates implementation guidelines for agencies across key pillars like identity, networks, and workloads of data. CISA Director Jen Easterly spoke with CrowdStrike CEO George Kurtz at last week's summit. In this highlight from their conversation, Easterly explains how the guidance is different than previous versions. We're excited. We just put out an update to our Zero Trust maturity model. We published the original version in 2021, and since that period of time, we've been collecting feedback from our partners across uh, the federal agencies, but also from industry partners. So we just published the update, um, and essentially what it does, uh, it adds another level. So we started out at what's the traditional level, sort of the starting level, and then we went to advanced, and then we went to optimal with respect to the things that you need to do on your network from identity to devices to network to workloads and applications to data and that steps you should take and we found that it was too high a leap to go from traditional to advanced so now we've got the initial stage uh, that um, essentially it's a roadmap to how do I implement these steps across these five pillars and obviously this is a really important part of what we're trying to do across federal uh, networks is the operational lead for federal cybersecurity as you remember, I was nominated for this job in the aftermath of SolarWinds. And when I took over, it was really sort of the dark days where we recognized that you know, kind of three key realizations. First of all, 
um, we did not have the visibility that we needed of threats and vulnerabilities, that it was wildly incomplete. We didn't have the ability to ingest and analyze and then react to uh, cyber risk data. That was inadequate, and we didn't have the right partnerships to be able to deal with those threats. And so we embarked on what now is about a two-plus-year journey of how we improve our visibility and our ability to uh, collaboratively analyze data so we can drive down risk, not just across federal networks, but across uh, critical infrastructure. And that's where, you know, as we built the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative and partnered with you from day one as a, as a plank holder. And that is really um, starting to take off in terms of making a real difference. Well, we'll come back to JCDC here in a minute. Um, we do have many folks that are outside just the federal government. So when we think about zero trust, maybe some takeaways, because, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your comments. I mean, if I was to say it a different way, you went from crawl to run, mm -hmm. you know, and you need a crawl, walk, run, right, mm -hmm. approach, right? So if you're outside the federal government, what, what should folks be thinking about in zero trust, and, yeah. and why is it so important uh, in stopping? Yeah, I mean, so it's not, first of all, a magic solution. I got a chance to sit down with John Kinderag a couple of weeks ago, who's sort of the the godfather of uh, zero trust, and it's a philosophy, right? It's a set of principles that essentially come down to, uh, you know, don't trust, always verify <laughs> at the end of the day. And then it, it's really a guide to how you develop that um, defense in depth to ensure that you know what is on your network at any one time. And I think the most important thing for anybody who's starting off in this journey is to recognize that this is a journey. Um, and it might take a while to get to what we call optimal uh, zero trust architecture. But you know, the old saying, a journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. And now we've made the first step a little bit easier because we've gone from traditional to initial instead of traditional to advanced. So like everything else, I mean, one of our core principles at CISA is to treat feedback as a gift. And that's how we were able to make version one better. And so while this is specific to federal civilian executive branch, the civilian.gov networks, I would love it if partners in industry would take a look at the maturity model and let us know if you have any extra feedback on it. We did take on feedback from industry and that helped to refine it. But you know, from my experience in Morgan Stanley and working with other big firms, everybody's on this journey and we can all learn from each other so that we can get to what looks um, optimal a lot faster. Perfect. Well, let's transition JCDC, which we, yeah. we talked about here um, just briefly. Uh, that's one of the areas that I know from a CrowdStrike perspective we were really excited about. And I think for many years, and you know, you were at Morgan Stanley and uh, you know, had a couple stints in the government. But one of the challenges on the private sector side is always what I would call the, the simplex conversation for the old modem people, right? You just sort of one-way conversations and you never get anything back. And I think uh, with your leadership and, um, uh, you know, many partners helping out, it, it's dramatically changed. Uh, and we, we appreciate that. So we recently helped with some supply chain threats that were out there. Maybe you can talk us through, like, how, how this all came together and, and what were the benefits and how can we learn from this and then create more of these instances where we can rapidly share this information to protect the community? Yeah, so it, it's worth just giving a little bit of context to this, right? I mean, as you know, because you've been in the middle of it, um, over the past decade or so, we've developed a much better understanding of the threat right. and we've developed more advanced capabilities to be able to do something about it, which I think is great. 
I do think we still are not at a level where we have a sustainable approach to securing our nation. Because we're dealing with, as you know, very advanced and sophisticated threat actors, nations, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. We're dealing with cyber criminals where the bar is getting lower to entry. And frankly, we are dealing with adversaries that operate with relative impunity and they don't hew to the same nor norms and standards that we, we do as a values-based democracy. And we're seeing that in Ukraine with horrific attacks against the Ukrainian people, kinetic attacks there. But so I think we need to do something different. And we've written about this uh, with Eric Goldstein on my team, three things. The first, technology product safety, uh, technology that is secure by design, secure by default. Corporate cyber responsibilities, so boards, CEOs, and really leaders at all level owning cyber risk as a matter of leadership accountability and good governance. And then finally, this whole idea that we need to transform from hackneyed public-private partnerships that we've both worked on for decades to something that's much more like real-time, persistent, operational collaboration. And that's what we've been operationalizing with the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. And we received those authorities with the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act. And essentially what that said is, okay, stand up a planning office. What is unique about it is the JCDC is the only federal cyber entity that by law brings together not just CISA, but the full power of the cyber ecosystem, CISA, NSA, and I think you had uh, Rob Joyce here earlier, FBI, Cybercom, and then the rest of the agencies that have um, authorities, capabilities, and talents to be effective from an all instruments of power uh, uh, way, and we are, of course, the cyber defenders. So one platform facing off to industry, but also international partners and state and local. So the idea is we come together to essentially put the shards of the puzzle together so we have this sort of tapestry of visibility that allows us to say, okay, you have that piece, you have that piece, now let's put that together to drive down risk to the nation. And you saw us working this with Log4j, great partners there. Uh, with our Shields Up campaign, but really we've been operationalizing this pretty deliberately over the last year and a half, and then most recently um, with 3CFs. Uh, obviously, you guys alerted us to the fact that this uh, video and voice app looked like it was being trojanized for multi-stage attacks, and we were able to prioritize aligned resources and then you know, essentially look for prevalence across federal and state networks, and then based on your alert, we published an alert that then referenced your report and then some others from close partners. Um, it provided the indicators of compromise, it provided the hunting guidance. And again, you shared that early with us, but also with the rest of the, the community. And I think you know this really well, and this, this audience does as well. I mean, the key word is community, right? This is not something that industry can do or government can do. We all have to work together with industry, government, researchers, academia, to come together to share what we know in a way that there is a default to share because we recognize that a threat to one is a threat to all where there's sort of this co-equal partnership with the reciprocal expectations of transparency and value added and, and uh, responsiveness and industry not thinking that there's going to be a punitive sanction for sharing and then you know, finally making it as frictionless as possible. So focused on shared platforms and on uh, analytics that can help us um, uh, drive big data. And so, you know, you, you guys, as I've said, have been fantastic partners. I don't know if Adam Myers is out, is out here somewhere, but um, really like Gold Star is a fantastic operational technical, you know, partner with us and several others, but he definitely deserves the, uh, the shout out.
Well, we'll make sure he gets that, and he was, he was on earlier this morning. <clears throat> but just, just the last piece on that, and then we can move to the, to the next topic. If you look at how that worked in 2023 and sort of the time frame, and in my talk, I, I went through the fact that the adversaries are looking at a watch, not a calendar. If you look at 2023 versus, say, just five years ago, how long would that, that whole process have taken five years ago versus what it took today? Yeah, I don't think it would have happened, to be but honest. I don't think so because, you know, the first thing that you need to do is to be able to provide the right platforms for sharing information. And I sort of joke around tongue-in-cheek on this, but, you know, it's amazing what Slack can do. <laughs> I mean, as opposed to sending emails back and forth. And we'll spin up Slack channels to be specific to threats. And so... I think the collaboration, the trust that we've been able to build, you know, and you know how hard it is to build trust. We talk about zero trust, but trust is really the currency when it comes to cybersecurity. And so, frankly, I, I don't see us being able to do that. And, you know, just go back to solar winds, right? right? I mean, that was a, another sort of supply chain right. attack, and we were not operating as a community at all across the federal government, between federal and industry. And I think in just the past two and a half years, we have made tremendous strides. There's a ton of work to be done, but I think we are moving in the right, right direction. Are there any things that, so a lot of progress, five years to today, anything that you believe that the public-private partnership should focus on to make that next leap? Yeah, so what we are, um, my, desire is to ensure that we are always adding value as a U.S. government, right? That we are being responsive, that we are being transparent. We're here to help. I know, you know, going back to the days of President Reagan. Um, you know, that said, um, partners shouldn't join the JCDC necessarily because they feel like they're owed something, you know, or they're going to get business or anything like that. Like, at the end of the day, this is people who want to do the right thing to protect the nation because we are dealing with some of the most difficult and complex threats there are out there. So sometimes, so if you treat relationships, whether it's a friendship or a marriage, as a transaction, we will never be able to develop the true operational collaboration that we need to be successful against our adversaries. So, you know, that's just a little bit of a philosophy piece. But um, I am excited because, you know, we published our JCDC planning agenda, and we're doing some really unique things this year. We're focused on open source software specific to industrial control systems, uh, water, energy, also on RMM and, and uh, MSPs this year. And then we're also working uh, with our partners to drive down risk to civil society through the high-risk community project that we announced at the Summit for Democracy. And so, you know, there is a real incentive to be part of this because you can make a real impact on the safety of Americans every day. And I think, and international partners, I think that's exciting. You can learn more about CISA's Zero Trust Maturity Model at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again next week. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.